Welcome once again to Clemson Prez this morning. I'm glad that each of you are here with us to join us in worship. Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 1 this morning. We're going to start a new series as we say goodbye to the last series where we've been asking God to teach us how to pray, even as Mike just prayed for us through all the different concerns and ministries going on here locally and throughout the world. Um, I don't know about you, but every time I look at the Lord's Prayer, it is an energizing thing for me to be reminded of what God could do in my life, and as we said, God could do in the life of our church as we get our heads and our hearts around praying that God, we would know Him as He is, as a Father, that we could be the kind of church that helps introduce people to the freedom of living with God as a Father, that we could be the kind of church that helps God, uh, or not helps God, uh, helps all of us take Him and His name and all of Him seriously as we hallow Him. All those things that we looked at in the Lord's Prayer, kind of church that helps people fight temptation, those shameful and secret parts in their life, even as we make it a safe place for them to come forward and wrestle with those, even as we do the same thing. So having turned the page on that series, we now turn the page to a series on the book of Galatians. What can we look forward to over the next few months as we look at this letter from the Apostle Paul to various churches in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, more or less? The best way I know to tell you how to look forward to what's in Galatians is just to share with you a little bit of my own story, my own story of my sin in college. Now, some of you hear that and you're like, should I cover my kids' ears because is this going to be like stories of wild frat parties or if you're a little bit older, the movie Animal House? Your sin in college, what is about to come out of this man's mouth? Well, my sin in college was not so much those things, but it involved studious attention to avoiding wild parties, good behavior, going to Bible studies, collecting mission trips like merit badges, and hanging out at church all the time and discussing good theology. That was the story of my sin in college. And you think, that doesn't sound like much of a story. What do you mean? Well, here's what happened in my life. I was raised, thankfully, in a Christian home, but I think I became a Christian in high school. It's there that I remember getting ready to go on a mission trip. Some of you have heard this story. And my youth pastor was sharing with us in the context of getting ready for that trip that though I had heard a thousand times in my life Jesus died for my sins, it clicked what that meant. Jesus, being perfect, took all of my sin on himself and its punishment and gave me all of his obedience and its reward. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe that's true. That's it, that's it, that's right there. And I think I became a Christian then because I noticed my life began to change. And I wanted to do all those things I mentioned that I had not wanted to do before. I wanted to be around other Christians. I wanted to learn about truth. I wanted to learn how to pray. I wanted to serve Him. And all those things were great. And for, and for all those things, I had some good motives. But I began to combine it with some really terrible motives as well. Because I was addicted to getting the approval of others and the approval of God. And I began to think, man, when I do those things, God smiles at me. Except I never really felt like I had his smile. I thought maybe by doing those things, at least he might be a little less disappointed in me than I felt that he always was. And I also noticed that I had this motive in me to do all those things because when I did them, 
I noticed other people, Christians in the church, looked and said, wow, good job, Brian. We're so impressed that such a young man cares about all of these things. And so I had some good motives, but I had some terrible motives where I was trying to earn the approval of God in others by doing all these things. And you're still thinking, that's not much of a story of sin in college. Where's the story of the sin? I was expecting, you know, a close my child's ears kind of moment. But let me just ask you, let's just kind of play a little game here together this morning. Let's say you're a spiritual counselor to two college kids, both of who claim to be Christian. Which one will you be concerned about more? Answer this just as the answer comes to your mind. One student claiming to be a Christian, you find out as you counsel them, is involved in all of those wild, crazy, awful sins that we cringe sometimes to even name. Sleeping around, drinking, trying anything and everything that comes along. You're counseling that student. You're also counseling another one who's doing all of those good behavior kinds of things, but just doing them for the wrong reasons. Which one are you worried about? Which one are you going to get worked up about? Which one do non-Christians think church people will get worked up about? And importantly, which one does Paul get worked up about and why? The answer that we're going to find out in Galatians is pretty surprising. It always surprises me no matter how many times I keep learning it. So let's turn now to Galatians with those questions in our mind. I want to read for us this morning Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. This is God's Word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, or of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, as we, we pray, continue to worship you this morning by meditating on your word together. Would you be with us? Would you give us your spirit? Would you show us yourself? Would you show us us? And would you show us Jesus? Lord, we ask it in his name. Amen. I want to see this morning two things with you as we consider these 10 verses. First, freedom from performance, and then secondly, is worth getting worked up about. Freedom from performance is worth getting worked up about. So first, freedom from performance. And as we'll see the next few months, this is one of the main themes, if not the main theme of the book of Galatians, freedom from performance. Let me give you a little bit of background on this book. As I said, it's one of Paul's first letters that he ever wrote. He wrote it to a group of churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. 
He had been there in this region, he had worked, he had started these churches, and he had founded them on the gospel, and they're turning their back on it. You heard it in verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Gospel, you probably know, you might know, is a word that basically means good news. Paul had founded them on the good news, and they're turning away from it. Good news presupposes some bad news. Paul, oftentimes in his letters, all of the Bible does, but we see it here, he describes for us what is this bad news that the gospel is the cure for. If you look at verse 4, it says, Christ gave himself for our sins, for our sins. If I was to ask you this morning, what's a sin? Most of us would give an answer something like, sin is breaking God's rules. And that's a good answer. Sin is breaking God's rules. But it's not only that. It's more than that. I think if you stand back and look at this book or all of the Bible in general, sin is not just a breaking of God's rules, but it's a breaking of God's heart. It's a breaking of His heart. And it's not just a breaking of His rules. At its core, it's a disposition that we have. It's a desire that we have. It's a power in our life. It's not just an action but it's something that's driving us that says you can be, should be, must be independent from God. I think if I could boil sin down, it would be that. The desire and drive and action to be independent from God. And here's what we're going to see as we go through this letter together over the next few months. You can seek that independence from God by breaking His rules. But you can also, like I did, seek that independence from God by keeping His rules. It's an aversion to wanting to be dependent on God, wanting to be independent from Him by either breaking or keeping the rules. That's sin. It's this internal problem. That's part of the bad news, but Paul says it's worse. There's also this external thing, which he mentions also in verse 4, that Jesus gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Sadly, I think one thing every honest human, man or woman, from any era of history can agree on is that they lived or live in a present evil age. Because no matter the age, no matter how comparatively good or bad things are, there's always the struggle of the poor that are being trampled on. There's always problems of injustice. There's always corruption. There's always evil, which I find fascinating on one hand because to say that we live in an evil age, no matter which age we live in, to say something is evil presupposes that there's some standard by which things can and should be judged as evil. And if there's a standard by which things must be declared as evil, then where did that standard come from? How do we know what that is? Yet all humans, whether they, believe in right, whether they say they believe in right or wrong or not, judge things as evil and broken and sinful and must be somehow changed. All of us agree on that, that we live in a present evil age, which presupposes there is a God who can tell us what those things are. We live with this problem of an evil age. It's an external problem on top of our internal problem of sin. That is the bad news throughout the Scripture and in these first ten verses of Galatians. That brings us, though, thankfully, to the good news, the gospel, the message on which Paul founded 
these churches before he left to go start more in other places. If you look back again at verse 4, the word deliver, deliver or rescue is the heart of the good news. It's the heart of this book of Galatians also. Just as Moses delivered or rescued the people from slavery, so now God comes and rescues and delivers us from slavery to sin. How? Jesus gave himself. As Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, a ransom payment. His life was a payment of a debt that you and I rack up through all of our breaking and keeping the rules to be independent from God, a debt we could not pay. Jesus paid it in full. And you say, but my sin is so great. How do I know his payment was good enough? Well, verse 1 tells us, God the Father raised him from the dead. When God the Father raised Jesus from the dead after he died on the cross to pay our debt, that is God the Father shouting, paid in full. Paid in full so much, I give Jesus back his life. His payment on the cross paid everything. It's canceled. It's done. So therefore, he can have his life back. And he shares that life with us. We'll see that as we go through this letter together, that Jesus unites us with him in his death and resurrection so that when he's given his life back, we are given our life back as well. And it might not be as explicit in these verses, but how do you get in on that? Paul says, by faith alone. By faith alone. By declaring your dependence on Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. You see, faith is the antidote to sin because sin says, I want to be independent. Faith says, I'm dependent. Faith says, I give up on my own actions and my own efforts and my own rule keeping. I give up on all the efforts to prove myself to God and others, and I simply rest in what Jesus did on the cross and at the tomb. That's why we so often say rightfully, it is by faith alone. That's how you get this great gift of God, this salvation, this deliverance. It's free. You don't have to pay anything for it. And verse 6 tells us the order of this. God called us by His grace before our obedience. He called us by His grace even before our faith. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other human heart, mine included, says, I'm going to obey first. I'm going to clean myself up before I come to God. But Christianity is the only one that says God smiles at us before we want him. Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. It's common to hear that a Christian is one who follows Christ's example and teaching. And I think, eh, Christ's teaching and example are critical, but that's not what makes someone a Christian. What makes someone a Christian is they've been rescued from a problem they could not fix on their own by Jesus' actions on the cross and at the tomb. That's what makes someone a Christian, declaring dependence, surrendering, giving up, admitting failure, and asking God, to take it. That's what makes someone a Christian. We are delivered. To say that we're delivered is to say we're helpless, to say the bad news is real, but the good news is just as real as well, that it is faith plus nothing that equals salvation. 
A faith that is a gift, that is a surrendering, a giving up, that equals a rescue, a deliverance, a salvation, a freedom from performing for God to earn His smile and His favor. But there's a problem. Paul had to write this letter for a reason. When he left, he says, some people came in and began to undermine, subvert what I had built on. They came in and they said a few things. We're going to look more at this first one next week. They said, Paul's not really an apostle. He's not really authoritative, equipped, ready to tell you the things he told you. He's not a bad guy. He's just not an apostle. And then they also said, and what Paul taught you about faith in Jesus, that's great. That is exactly where you ought to start. And now you've got to add to it. And it's the and that makes Paul so upset. Because they said, and, it's no longer faith plus nothing, it's faith plus something equals salvation. In their case, they came in and said, you've got to keep the Old Testament laws. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the food laws. We'll talk more about that, but we'll talk more about those as the weeks go on. But this group called the Judaizers comes in and says, not faith plus nothing. Faith is good. Yes, Jesus' death on the cross, critical. Don't lose that. Now add to it. Keep going if you want to earn God's smile. And Paul lost his mind. I mean, you can feel the intensity coming off the pages in verses 6 through 10, 2,000 years after he wrote them. Why is freedom from performance worth getting worked up about? So let's move on to the second point and look at that. Look with me again at verses 6 through 10. That's what I want to consider here. If you're familiar with other books in the New Testament that Paul wrote, they follow always, except this one, a pattern. Paul says, it's from me, Paul, to you, this church in Corinth or Colossus or Ephesus or wherever that I'm writing, grace to you and peace. I'm so thankful for you. I miss you. I long for you. I pray for you. And then he gets into some of the things he wants to address to them. All of them follow that pattern except this one. This one, he says, it's from me, Paul, to you. I'm astonished. I can't even get my head around the fact that you lost this so quick. You can feel the intensity coming off. He says, not only is he astonished, but you're, you're turning to a different gospel. He says, and if you do that, if someone teaches you that, may they be accursed. The NIV says, eternally condemned. May they be damned. That's his first note here. Hi, I'm Paul. You're this church in Galatia. If anyone teaches you this, may they be damned. Wow, okay, Paul, good to hear from you. We missed you too. (laughs) He just comes out swinging and striking. We can be astonished at his astonishment. Because think about it. He wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians That church struggled with these things. As you read the letter, you find out that church struggled with gross sexual sin. Men were sleeping with their stepmothers. It's true. It's in the Bible. They were getting drunk at communion, and they were divided. To that church, Paul starts off like this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. To Galatia, a church that's basically asking How good do we have to be? They're talking about the law of Moses, in and of itself a good thing. They're not 
They're not engaging in those things that the church in Corinth was engaging in. They're not drunk at communion. They're not divided. Well, they are divided. We'll see. But they're not doing all these other sins. And Paul starts off and says, I'm astonished that you left behind the gospel. We're astonished at his astonishment. If I was going to be astonished at a church, it would be the one in Corinth. I would have come out swinging against them. But to the church that's saying, how obedient do we have to be? I'd say, listen, y'all are doing great. We've got it completely backwards from Paul. I'm not saying Paul's tolerant of those sins of the church in Corinth at all. He gives no quarter to them when you read that letter. But we're too tolerant of the gospel being corrupted by good people who were just trying to be nice. Paul's, as we say today, triggered. He's absolutely triggered. Some would say he's overreacting. I mean, isn't this just a minor revision? He still said Jesus' death on the cross is good. You need that. You should have faith. It's just add a little bit to it. But he's so fired up because as soon as you add to it, as soon as you add to God gives you freedom from performance, you have slavery. You can't say, listen, it's half God and half you. You can't even say it's 99% God and 1% you. As soon as you do that, you've lost the whole thing. You're no longer free, you're in slavery. That's why Martin Luther said it this way, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. And do you want to build your confidence before a holy God on your own work? If you'll say, I'll take 99% of Jesus and 1% of my work, You've got 100% of your work. That's the only way to see it. That's why Paul is so triggered. They're losing everything. You say, well, does he have to be so, like, firm about it? Well, if your kid is about to step out in front of a bus, you see the bus coming, you see your child walking into the street, do you say this? Hey, bud, listen, um, I'm real proud of you. You're doing a great job. You're growing up to be such a fine young man, and there's so many things about you that I love, and I love spending time with you, and you know you're kind, and I see you working hard in school, but, but if there's just, listen, just one thing you can work on is I really want you to focus on looking both ways before you cross the street. This is, this is going to really help you. Or do you say, look out! Is it harsh to scream, look out, to a child who's about to step in front of a bus and lose everything? No, it's the exact right thing to say. Freedom from performance to earn God's approval is the first truth of Christianity that we learn and the first one we forget. It's fascinating to me. The first one we learn and the first one we forget. It's so easily forgotten. Now, I don't think any of you are struggling with adding circumcision or the Old Testament food laws to faith in Jesus in order to earn God's smile. But don't we do that in so many ways that are hard to recognize? It's faith in Jesus and make sure you read your Bible, and you read your Bible a lot, and you pray, and you add to it knowing good theology, voting the right way. You might add how you educate your kids. You could add financial responsibility and not going into debt, showing up at work every day and being a solid citizen. We can add all these things to the gospel, and they're all good things, but the question is why, and why do we think we add them? What are they doing for our relationship with God? What is it for you that you feel like you have to do to keep God smiling at you? 
And we're going to see this more as we go, but it's not just what do I have to do to keep God smiling and his approval, but what do I have to do to get others smiling and keep their approval? Because that's part of the message of Galatians as well. That's why we saw in verse 10, he says, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? We'll see it more when we get to the end of chapter 2 when we find the apostle Peter giving up the gospel in order to gain the approval of other people. Here's the good news for those of us who are running an unending race to try to get other people's approval or to justify our existence or to declare ourselves worthy. The good news is you don't have to. Christianity is something where you can receive that and you don't have to work for it. Someone said you can receive it, you don't have to achieve it, and it's so true. All of those things are given to you, and it changes how we relate to God and how we relate to other people. Here's the question we'll keep coming back to as we go through the book of Galatians. What do you feel you have to do, be, or even own to get either God's smile or the smile of others? What do you have to do? What do you have to feel? What do you have to be? What do you have to own or possess to get God's smile or the smile of others? If you can name some things right there, Galatians will come alive to you. And the gospel and God's grace will come alive to you as well. And when you name those places, what do you do? Lord willing, what we are always doing, we repent and trust Jesus. We don't just repent of our bad works, we repent of our good ones as well. We repent of our good works, trying to stand on them before God for even the least smidgen of his approval or smile instead of turning all to Jesus and everything to he, that he has done. And when we do that, one of the things that can begin to happen is we can begin to recover our first love. We can begin to recover our first love, which is one of my prayers for myself and one of my prayers for our church as well, that we could recover our first love. Because when we live under the burden of trying to win God's smile, win his approval, God becomes just that. He becomes a burden. And we don't like burdens. And we wind up not liking God at all. But when we live under the fact that his smile and approval is freely given before we even obeyed, God becomes beautiful to us. He becomes lovely. He becomes desirous. We want him. That's one of my prayers for us as we go through this book, that God will no longer be a burden to us, but that he will be beautiful to us. I want to close by taking one more run at this by saying uh, we've loved it here these first three months. Hard to believe it's been three months, but of course we miss Colorado Springs as well. We miss being able to jump in the car and a few hours be at places like Rocky Mountain National Park. But we also miss some of the city parks. I want to show you this morning Garden of the Gods. Can you see that? That's a city park in Colorado. Right there in Colorado Springs, we could be there in about 10, 15 minutes from our house. Not too shabby for a city park, is it? Especially when you consider this city park was freely given as a gift to the city. In 1909, Charles Perkins owned this and several hundred acres around it, and he gave it to the city. Actually, his kids did after he died. But it was his wish that it be given to the city on one condition, that it would always be kept free and open to the public. Great gift. Except it becomes so expensive to maintain that at various points throughout the history of this park and the city, the city said, 
we can't afford to keep this open and accessible and safe for the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from around the world that come here. It's a free gift. We can't afford it. And so they explored selling it. How are we going to keep this place open? It's a free gift, but it's too expensive. And when I hear that, I think, that is me and the gospel when I'm off base. I think God says it's free, now Brian, earn it. God says it's free, now Brian, pay for it. And that's not the way it works at all. Galatians and Paul say, no, that's not the way it works. It's not free, now earn it. It's not free, now pay for it. God pays for everything. Jesus delivered us from our sins, from the present evil age. I don't have to do anything else to keep his smile. And that's the place I got to in only a few years of walking with God. By the time I got to college, there was a season where I was done with Christianity. I wanted nothing else to do with it. Because when we think we live under that burden, that's where we get. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're done trying to earn God's approval. Maybe you're done trying to earn the approval of others and never quite getting there. That's where we need this book. That's where we need, not this book, but we need the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and saved us before we ever moved one foot to him. And he never stops relating to us on that basis. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your gospel would always be beautiful to me. I pray that it would always be beautiful to this church, especially to those this morning who are struggling. Struggling to know that you love. Struggling to know that you accept. Struggling to know that you smile. Father, forgive us for all those things we pile up thinking we have to earn that which is freely given. Lord, they're good things so often, but forgive us for using them in the wrong way. Lord, forgiving us, Lord, forgive us for thinking we have to have the approval of others through whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that we would turn from all those things and rest in Jesus once again and worship him for his grace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.